Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. Our Choctaw people were once torn away from their ancestral homes in Mississippi, Arkansas, and Louisiana, and forced into an unknown land in Indian territory, now Oklahoma. Some traveled through the harshest of conditions during a record-breaking freezing winter. Many of the elderly, the young, and the sick went home to meet their creator as their bodies were left along the Trail of Tears without proper goodbyes and ceremonies. Their possessions, ancestors, burial places, and history may have been left behind in their former states, but pieces of their hearts were left along this so-called trail, so aptly named for the mourning that accompanied their losses along the way. But there's more to this story beyond the shedding of the tears. Throughout the dangerous journey, a sort of contradiction arose to counter the sadness. An unlikely sound could be heard sweeping through the trees, bouncing off the flowing rivers and carrying up into the heavens, the sound of voices sung by Choctaws. Beautiful hymns, Choctaw hymns, breathed with passion, courage, and nostalgia, all emanated from the weary travelers' voices. How did they find this strength? How was it even possible to sing during the worst of times? In 1821, a former Massachusetts attorney turned Presbyterian minister named Cyrus Byington came to live with the Choctaws of Mississippi. Because there was no written language at the time, Cyrus created a dictionary and translated the Bible and some hymns to the Choctaw language. Cyrus partnered with a man named Alfred Wright, publishing a Choctaw hymnal in 1829, which contained 55 hymns, including hymn number 48, Amazing Grace. The primary Choctaw removals began in 1830 through 1833. Cyrus and his wife, Sophia, traveled with the tribe as they also made their way to Indian territory by foot. It is said that along the way, the Choctaw began to sing hymns. Can you imagine it? These people, weary with emotion and physical pain, trauma, fear, and sadness over tremendous loss, they sang. I've always wondered if they did so to gain strength or did it remind them of better times? Maybe it was all of the above. And I bet those forests became even more beautiful with those sounds echoing through the trees. It would be 45 years that Cyrus and his wife devoted their lives to living with, teaching to, and learning from the Choctaw. At least nine editions of the hymnals he started have been published since the first one was written. And today you can visit deep in the heart of Choctaw country and see churches whose members are still singing the hymns of their language. You get the sense that these are much more than just songs to our people. Beyond the worship, you can almost sense a oneness with ancestral voices drifting along through those leaves and those trees along that journey that would change lives forever. There's a reason today's guest is known as the voice of Chattataloa, or the voice of the Choctaw song. Her mission is to honor her ancestors by singing and recording all 163 Choctaw hymns, and she truly has the voice of an angel. But not only that, she also was crowned princess in Native American pageants. She was a board member of and ambassador for the Oklahoma clan of California. And to all of this, I say, you go, Choctaw-Ohoyo. Everyone, I'd like to introduce you to Sarah de Herrera. Sarah, welcome to Native Choctaw Talk. Yakoke, yakoke. Thank Woo-hoo. you, thank you. I was so excited for today. I waited all day for this. Me too. I I've been looking forward to it. 
<laughs> well, thanks for joining me. And, um, you know, it's funny because I, I heard you singing a long time ago and I, you know, just on, I was looking at YouTube videos of Choctaw hymns and I was like, wow, what a voice. I had no idea I'd end up meeting you someday. So 163 hymns recorded in Choctaw, you'll create like a new category for Guinness book of world records. And I got to thinking we should totally make a native version of the world records. What do you think? I think that'd be a wonderful idea. <laughs> we'll get right on that in our spare time, right? Yes. <laughs> Well, don't worry, listeners, you will get to hear recordings of Sarah singing in just a bit. But in the meantime, we all want to know more about your world and how you got started singing and got into American Indian pageants and all that. So for starters, you were born in Valencia, California, and you came busting into the world singing and also telling your elementary teachers what's up. So tell us about what you said to your teacher when you were seven years old. I love the story. So my second grade teacher, she had tried to tell the classroom that basically in our social studies book, which had a, um, a Native American pottery depiction of a Native woman on it, and to tell us that Native Americans no longer exist and that they were extinct. And so in my head, I thought, wow, I'm part zombie. <laughs> or something through <laughs> walking dead <laughs> it's it was just a weird thing as a child and I told my teacher I'm like no you're wrong like I'm Native American this is who I am my grandfather's Native American my mother's Native American and you can't say that that's not the truth and wow. that's that's how I taught the teacher a lesson <laughs> I love this so much and it was really like hey I'm Sarah. I'm native. I'm still here. We're still here. <laughs> We're not going anywhere. Isn't it crazy though? I mean, I don't judge, but it is surprising that there are people that really don't know that there are native Americans out there. And for you and I, we grew up in those communities. We saw that our whole lives. And it wasn't until I moved away from Oklahoma um, when I was in my twenties that I was like, Oh, I, I didn't realize there weren't native Americans everywhere. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's really surprising because especially to California has like a huge native population and to hear that in Southern California is something that shocks a lot of people. I bet. I bet. Well, way to go, way to represent and just let people know that we're still here. So you've also had success in the pageant world, as I mentioned earlier. So tell us about your crowns. So I had received um, the... 2008-2009 Miss Oklahoma clan of California princess back when I was 13 years old and that was something very unusual they had only ever crowned someone like the top princess if you will um once before and oh. so I had taken on the role that many 22 year olds would take on so and that's because the judges felt that I could live up to that expectation and so I had, there. Yeah. and so I had done that. And then I wanted to run again when I was a little bit older. And so I, in 2011 to 2012, I was crowned Miss Oklachada clan of California princess. And that was when I was 15. And then I competed for the Miss Indian world pageant in 2018, um, in, at the gathering of nations powwow when I was 24. I love this. And it, um, you know, I, I know that when, people think of pageants, they think of these like beaded sequenced gowns that, you know, are very, um, glamorous. And of course, uh, definitely not native looking. And I love the way our princesses look in the native world when you do have your pageants. So tell us more about the regalia and, and I know sometimes you're holding baskets and tell us more about all of that. Well, the regalia definitely, at least for me has very significant meaning. And it's something where I know that I have kind of helped to introduce other time periods of regalia wear, um, especially during the Miss New World competition. I had done a feather mantle to tell a story about how the Choctaw people received the gift of corn. And really the regalia doesn't have to be all sequins or cotton or anything like that. Sometimes it can be something as simple as just representing your culture through beadwork, um, representing yourself with pride, I think is the most important thing when it comes down to these pageants. 
That's great. And I know you mentioned when you were 13 that the judges normally didn't pick someone that age because of it can be a rigorous thing to take on. I, I think people just think you win a pageant and then you go off and smile and wear your crown all the time, go to Walmart with your sash on. That's not <laughs> the, the world of the pageants. Once it's over, you have a big responsibility to represent, you know, for others, it's states for you. It's, you know, the, the, uh, Okla Chetta clan of California and to represent natives in general. So what did you do during that year that you had your reign? So when I was 13 years old, I had gone to at least, I want to say over 30 powwows within the area in California wow. to try and essentially guide people who may have a misunderstanding of what Choctaw culture is versus what Powell culture is mm -hmm. and to try and help them to find services and things like that for themselves as Choctaw members. So that really that was me going out, looking for people essentially indirectly while representing my culture at powwows to say we are here and that we are present. That's great. And I know that it's not always easy. If you're in Oklahoma, it's a whole lot easier to find those resources. But for those who are scattered in different states, um, like I am right now, I'm living in Illinois right now. And same thing, I have to go try to figure out, are there any other Choctaw around here? It's really mm -hmm. hard to know. And like you said, too, I think something that some people don't know is not every tribe does powwows. And um, so I think it's great that you showed some representation there too at the powwow. So that's a lot to hit in one year. It's great. Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's hard to think back that that's, I, that was my life, like going to powwows right? every weekend, <laughs> balancing homework, doing all yeah. that. It was a lot to handle at that age. But it's not surprising because I find it interesting that you also started college at age 14 while you were in high school. And then you graduated high school with one and a half years of college already completed way to go overachiever and make us all look bad, but what did you study in college? I um, studied business administration and I received my bachelor's from Cal Poly Pomona. And I also had a minor in Native American studies. That's wonderful. I've always wondered what are those classes like for people who are thinking about getting into, whether they're just taking it on the side or they're also getting a degree at the moment and they think about minoring in that. Um, what do those studies look like? So they were very diverse and they weren't just like one specific region based or anything like that for my degree area of, um, mm -hmm. program that was offered. <clears throat> and so pretty much it was something where I had guest lectured a little bit um, to kind of help people get a different perspective of Native Americans besides just one direction that my teacher had and she was much older. And so she had... Um, the main professor. I mean, she had wanted to um, do all that. Well, that's great. Was there anything else on that subject of the, the studies, the Native American studies? Um, with that, a lot of it involved outreach. So I went to like Sherman Indian High School to actually go out and like represent Cal Poly Pomona and do many things with the school and even go back to after I had graduated to teach like ribbon skirt making workshops and stuff like Ooh, that. Fun. For you listeners, this Cal Poly graduate was also the first recipient of the Okla Chetta Clan of California Ambassador at just 18 years old and was voted in as a board member as well. Sarah also sang the national anthem at the Okla Chetta Clan of California gathering at 15 years old. So her pipes were already getting prepared for what was to come. And she sang at the Native American Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. for Choctaw Days at the Smithsonian. That would have been fun. Um, she was also named Top Native American Youth Leader 2016 by Unity, which is the United National Indian Tribal Youth Organization. When you and I first met, you told me that you are an English teacher, a teacher and a healer, and that you use music as a tool to promote the language. And I, I love that. Would you tell us more about what you're doing today as a teacher and as a healer? So um, for me, I, I had formerly um, essentially taught English online, uh, mostly to students around the world. And I still continue to do it today, but it's, it's not as um, full-time, I shall say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and pretty much um, the the, what I do today as a teacher and also as a healer is that um, there's a lot of wounds, especially with 
um, people when it comes to either learning English or learning Choctaw or learning both. Um, and it's a difficult process. It, a lot of it um, can come in surprising ways to people when they realize how much um, sometimes generational trauma they may have. And that can also be almost like a blocker for mm -hmm. them to pursue their culture and to pursue um, Choctaw language or any language for that matter. And so that's where I use music to help my students um, to essentially grow and be able to overcome these things in a less stressful manner. Because sometimes it can create a lot in their minds and overcomplicate things that it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> oh, for sure. Right. Right. I love that. So you kind of are that liaison between where they could be and where they are now. And you're like, look, I understand. I get it. And then, so in 2009, you attended an event that really left an impression on you. Tell us about that. So in 2009, that's when I attended my first Labor Day festival. And that's when I got to see my grandfather and my mom was with me as well. And he got to join, um, his first ever Choctaw social dance. And that was something that was very um, memorable for him. And that was something that he really enjoyed that he got to share with me during his abled years. And so mm -hmm. um, over the years going to Labor Day Festival, I think I've attended uh, for 10 years consecutively before the pandemic hit. Um, I would, um, once the church was built or even just um, different places where hymn singing would occur, I would uh, just go and try and learn the hymns and so forth. And once the church um, had official like meetings and things like that, that's when I began to hear the four-part harmonies that um, a lot of people would say that Choctaws are really good at and known for. And that's when I fell in love with Choctaw hymns. Mm, love that. And we're going to talk a little bit about your grandfather later. He sounds like a wonderful man. So in the churches, it really is impactful when you're sitting there and listening to them sing the hymns aloud. And I don't know, man, what a goosebumps moment. And so sometimes you'll be sitting there and there's elders singing them and in four parts in those churches. And it seems like that had an influence on your life from what I'm understanding. And I'm assuming that's what got you into singing the hymns. Is that correct? Yes. Especially understanding how language and um, religious practice kind of influence both hand in hand, that really intrigued me a lot. Mm -hmm. And especially with my passion for singing, I thought this would be a great way to kind of combine the two and um, focus my efforts on praising the Lord. I love that. And so speaking of how old were you when you started, I mean, if you started uh, college when you were 14, you must've started singing when you were like zero, I assume <laughs> you overachiever you. Uh, yes. In some ways I, I sang before I could talk. It's one of those things I've, I've also sang on the radio back when I was in elementary school, oh, wow. uh, when I was first learning languages, I started speaking Spanish first and I refused to speak English for a little while. And because of that, um, I had a little issue with sentence patterns because they were more reflective of Spanish and I needed a speech therapist to learn English. So how ironic, right? That is so <laughs> ironic, but I love it. <laughs> I do what I want. I'm speaking Spanish y'all. <laughs> yes. So. Uh, so speaking of, you know, languages and such, did you learn to speak Choctaw along the way? Yes, my grandfather, um, because they they had told my parents no longer for me to speak other languages, at least until I was older. And my grandfather refused to listen to the teachers. And so he would try to teach <laughs> me Choctaw every time he was on the phone. <laughs> and that is the, in a weird way, that's the best way to learn because sometimes um, we get confused with videos and things like that. And sometimes you could there's, there's this odd phenomenon where you could be watching someone mouth something. And if you hear something different, you're going to mix it up. Mm -hmm. You're going to believe what you see before you believe what you hear. And so because I had listened to my grandfather speak Choctaw over the phone and he would try and teach me over the phone, that's 
and a little bit in person. That's really what helped to kind of set the tone for me to just listen, just to learn to listen. That is so smart. And you are exactly right. There's, we learn so much if we're taking our classes, like I'm taking the talk, talk classes with Miss Lily. We'll talk about her later, but, um, and of course I get into the grammar and I get into the vocabulary, which mm-hmm. is all important, but sometimes if you don't just stop and listen and just kind of like, let it get into your brain and start understanding the patterns, the sounds, and then, and then just naturally understanding the meaning behind them, you kind of just get stuck in grammar world. So that's really interesting that that's how you learned is your grandpa talking to you in it. And then, so when it comes to your singing and and translating from English to Choctaw, or even just diction, who helps you with those things today? So Miss Lily at Choctaw Nation, um, she teaches online classes and I've known her for many years. And so I have uh, some of the translations uh, of her speaking the Lord's Prayer for the singing version, as well as the national anthem. And she's the one who helped me to make it happen. Um, She uh, did not at all when I had done those songs, uh, put them to music. And that's where I had put it to music for her. And I didn't really know sheet music or anything like that at the time. So Mm. it was just kind of like drawing lines of how I thought sound should be and going forward with that. Well, and it obviously worked. She understood what you were doing. So Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's great. I love that because, um, you know, our Choctaw nation provides so many resources. So you don't even have to be Choctaw to learn the language. We're all on a mission right now uh, to really all of us tribes, basically that do have, uh, speakers that can also teach. We're on a mission right now to not let our language die. So of course we want our Choctaw fellow Choctaws to learn, but don't feel like you have to be Choctaw to hop on those classes. There's a link on my native Choctaw website that has the information that you'd need to be able to enroll in a class. You enroll once a year, and there's day classes, night classes. It's all free. You do have to get a book. Um, but that's pretty easy. And my classes that I take, my sister and I take are Tuesdays and Thursday nights at eight o'clock PM. And it's such a nice, um, you know, it's in the evening, everything's done for the day. And we just sit down and we, you know, remotely take those classes. So this is a shameless plug for Miss Lily and the Choctaw Nation classes. So everybody get on board. Um, So with that translation, you were talking about that she helped you with the Lord's prayer. We're going to get to hear the Lord's prayer later, but now let's listen to your Choctaw rendition of the national anthem. I'm so excited for our listeners to hear this. absolutely beautiful. And getting to hear these songs we know in our language is so unique. I, that song is very, very hard to sing in English. I can imagine it's also 
hard to sing, uh, in Choctaw. So in hitting those high notes, I mean, how do you do it? For me, I was uh, very thankful that, um, I had, uh, a lot of practice when I was younger with singing high notes and things like that. Yeah. But, um, the reason why I even had, I guess, a desire to sing it at all in Choctaw was because I would hear it at, um, our, uh, chief's inaugurations. And that's when I was like, why are we doing it in English? Right. And, and that was when I was like, no, we need to, or even for veterans, um, mm-hmm. and military. And Speaking so today was, is veterans day, by the way, oh, thank you veterans. But yeah, yeah, so you're, you're hearing all of this in English and you're like, why are we not saying this in Choctaw for our Choctaw ceremonies? Right. Yes. And so that's when, um, after I'd sung it at the Oklachata clan of California gathering way back in the day, that's when chief Pyle and then later chief Batten, um, had asked me to sing for um, their inaugurations. Oh, what an and, honor. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I just felt like I was on top of the world. It was great. It was a good time. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, how many people can say they got to sing for their chiefs? Pretty cool. So you said something to me when we were talking the other day and then you mentioned it earlier and you said you feel a calling to help heal the wounds of our people. Can you elaborate just a little bit more on that? It's almost like self healing in a way to kind of think of it. Um, I know that these are wounds that for our people, um, whether just be Native Americans in general or just Choctaw people, um, these are things that really we all feel and that we all have a calling to our culture and finding that path can be really difficult for a lot of people. And so that's where I just felt that when I became princess, that this was my duty forevermore, that I would help my people to find their way to the nation and not just simply going to, you know, the culture center or anything like that, but actually meeting the people and actually feeling a, a true connection to the community that is there as well as those, um, abroad. That, that passion just exudes out of you. Um, when you're talking about the tribe and when you're talking about singing and when you're singing. And so we thank you for that. So something very important among all the things you do is this recording of the 163 Choctaw hymn. So why don't you share about that big quest that you have on your plate? So for me, um, you know, thankfully we have at least a uh, sheet music and things like that for it now. Um, but it's really something where I hear so many people play the old elders recordings and they're beautiful, but I want people to sing it now. I, I would much rather people take my recordings, learn and have the courage to sing the Choctaw hymns and preserve it and keep going with it. Even, you know, if they want to embellish it, that's okay. It's one of those things where it's a very personal yet outward um, performance to praise the Lord. And that's really what I wanted to to really focus on was to allow people to have these hymns to be able to sing at home, especially during the COVID pandemic. Oh, yeah. Right. That's so smart. And so what's it like to sing in the Choctaw language for these hymns, having a degree in music myself and voice, I know that placement of syllables is important. So pairing a native language with, with very English American hymns has to be a challenge, right? Yes, especially um, even if you're going to go off of from hymns to um, other Christian music to even like pop there's a lot of, um, uh, you have to really understand the language to know when to hit that note right and to know mm-hmm. that that is what you're saying. And that way, nothing gets miscommunicated. And so, um, another song that I was really interested in actually having translated was Swing Low Sweet Chariot, um, which is done by Wallace Willis. And I really wanted. Um, their family members and maybe even the Jubilee singers to sing the Choctaw version, you know, and that way um, we could hear Choctaw in new ways besides just the hymns. So you've actually, you're already in touch with these family members of Wallace Willis, who's 
obviously the writer of the song. So you are in touch with his descendants. Yes, absolutely. That's so So, interesting. And it's a small world. (laughs) It is, isn't it? Oh my goodness. The people you meet along the journey. Mm -hmm. So do you think that this will happen that you guys will all get together and get to record this together? Yes. So, um, the family, they had all come together and they are total okay with it and everything like that. Well, that mm-hmm. that's so exciting. Please keep that, keep us updated. And I want to be sure to post that on my native, uh, chalk talk Facebook page. Once you've put that out there for the world to hear, it is going to be absolutely beautiful. And I'm already getting just kind of goosebumps thinking about this happening. So, uh, you have a favorite hymn, tell us which one it is. So it's, it's really interesting because a lot of people think it's the one that I have on YouTube and the way I sing it on YouTube is my favorite version of uh, Choctaw hymn number 28. Uh, but actually um, the reason why I even sung it to the tune of Amazing Grace was because that's what most people are familiar with. And at the time I didn't know enough about the tune to really give it a proper performance and so the actual translation of the real amazing grace is much difficult much more difficult than a lot of people realize and so once that um came way that's when i sang it later for an irish event um so that's kind of one of those things where um a lot of people get them confused and that's actually something that's very common to sing the tunes and like amazing grace or something very familiar for people so that way they can focus more on the words yes that's really smart so and i'm sure our listeners are curious what it sounds like in choctaw by you so let's play him number 48 amazing grace originally written by john newton she Grace is beautiful in any language, but it's especially beautiful the way you performed it and in our Choctaw language. And as you mentioned, the translation isn't absolutely, you know, it's not amazing grace word for word translated over. It's a little bit different. The meaning and the words are a little different, but the, the, obviously the music is the same. So, um, but still we, we love it. It's beautiful. And, um, I'm really excited that we got to hear that. Love it. 
So shifting gears a bit, you know, I love a good family story and mm-hmm. I was honored to get to learn more about your family history. Now you are a descendant of chief Greenwood LaFleur, and I'm sure you're grateful that you have a family member that preserved some history by writing some things down a few years back. So we're going to talk about your mom's great, great grandpa, Willie, a Willie spring born in 1864 in Oklahoma. He was a grandson of chief Greenwood LaFleur. And in March of 1883, he married Harriet Lucinda Self, who was born in 1886. Now, the first part of this story that's super interesting is that Willie was a Choctaw and Harriet was white. Oh, so scandalous. So I'm sure there was a lot of surprise in the Self household when their little Harriet Lucinda was marrying a Choctaw man. Um, So you shared with me an interview that someone had done with Harriet. Now, where did that interview come from? Do you know? I believe it had come from when um, the uh, BIA, they were looking essentially for Choctaw stories and they were interviewing a bunch of people. And I want to say you can find it, I think, with the Dawes rolls, if I'm not mistaken. But it's just one of those things where it's a family story. Um, We have it. every, Every person has a copy of it. And it, it's really interesting to kind of hear, her, you know, oh definitely. Oh my gosh, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you and I talked uh, the earlier about how I was up until almost 3 a.m. last night because I was reading more and more about your story and I got on ancestry.com and I was following these rabbit trails all over the place. I mean, the world you opened up for me is just nuts. I, I can't stop with the, the story. <laughs> it's so fun. Um, but I love, I love that they fell in love. It's such it's a love story. It's, you know, it's a record of their history, but it truly is a love story. So I'm going to go ahead and read from the information that you gave me that we're not totally sure where, um, this actual story is in the records, but, um, I'm sure we could dig around and find it. So sorry for not referencing that, but I think our listeners are going to love this. So this is again, written by Harriet about her life with her husband, Willie. Pa and the boys had come over here in the spring of 1882 to build houses on the ranch where we were to live and to have everything comfortable for Ma and us girls before we came over in the fall. They built our big four-room plank house with a hall almost as big as each from room to room. There were so many of us and hired hands too all the time. There were Pa and Ma and eight of us children then. Our house was out on the prairie, one mile north of Longview Post Office, which was in the home of George Oaks. That old house is still standing three miles east of the present town of Hugo. It was made of planks too, and I just can't think where they got the planks to build houses with here in 1882. Now, remember, she we don't know what year she was writing this. It was many years ago, so I want to go, now that you're going to live in this area, you should go check out... uh, one mile north of Longview post office, the home of George Oaks. See if you can find it, see if it's still standing. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. I'm so curious. Yes. We need to go on a hunt. If you find it, send us a picture because our listeners are going to want to see it too. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Willie spring had got acquainted with Pa and the boys when they came over in the spring, he used to come over and spend nights with them. Then when he came here in the fall, we had a big housewarming and dance. Everybody in the country was there, including him, but he was so bashful that he pretended not to notice me. He would come on Sundays and pretend to be visiting the boys. Then once we went to spring chapel to church, they got one of the other boys to ask me if he could have my company home. I said yes and waited for him to come around for me. Finally, the crowd came in and asked me why I didn't come. They had their horses. I told them I was waiting for Willie to come for me. Then I found out that he had gone home to saddle his horses and would join us as we went past their place about a half mile east of the church. He had been too timid to tell me that. Well, he rode with me, but was such a tubby that I had to do all the, all the talking. So she says tubby a couple of places in here. And I've just wondered, you know, there's a lot of tubby, like Choctaw names. Do you think that came I from know, something or I, I know the last name Tubby, at least it's usually for warrior and it's probably, she probably meant Tubby in a different way, but you know, Choctaws, they do a lot of listening mm-hmm. they, and especially the more traditional they are, they do a lot of listening 
and rather than talking. So it's one of those things that's just like really resonates to today. Right. Yeah. I love that little view into the past. Okay. So soon after that, he sat around our house a half day before he got the courage to ask me to go to a dance with him. Then when we wanted to get married, he got his uncle Jim spring to ask pa for me. Bless his heart. It's so funny. (laughs) Uncle Jim was sheriff of the County. And when he rode up to our house, ma sister, nanny, and I were quilting. Ma just wondered and puzzled over why the sheriff came and asked for Paul. He was down on the creek making rails and Ma blew the horn for him to come to the house, but she didn't ask Uncle Jim what he wanted. She blew the horn. That's awesome. (laughs) Women those days didn't ask anything about their husband's business. Ma never knew where here a bunch of cow hands were going when they rode off in the morning unless they were going so far that they would need lunch or chuck wagon. But I knew what Uncle Jim wanted, and right away, I asked Nanny to go down to the spring with me after some water. Ma told us to try and get the quilt out before sundown, that there was plenty of water up for the night. I insisted that I wanted a fresh drink, and I sure did, because I was so excited my mouth and throat were dry. We went to the spring and tried to stay until Uncle Jim would be gone, but we couldn't. He stayed so long. (laughs) We went back to the house and found Ma crying. Nanny asked what was the matter, and she said, I told Bill when he wanted to move over here that some of our children would marry Indians. <laughs> so great. And sure enough, we did. Six out of the 10 of us married Choctaw Indians. I married Willie Spring. Nanny married his brother, Basil. Tom married Annie Usre. Dave married a full-blood Choctaw girl, Ellie Fisher. Our adopted brother, Bill Russell, married Emma Usre. And our youngest brother, Doss, married Sarah Spring. Doc, George, and Frank married white girls and Walter was killed at 16. So, um, I just, I read that like twice last night. Cause I thought that was so funny. Her mom's in there crying. Oh no. When we move here, everybody's going to marry Indians. And they did. <laughs> it's, it's funny to think that way because especially like as a young woman, I get that now and instead it's a good thing. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you better marry yourself an Indian. <laughs> It's so different. Keep the Choctaw line going, please. (laughs) Oh, it's so cool. And I also, if we have any listeners out there that have the last names, um, Usray, so it's U-S-R-A-Y, last name Spring, Fisher, you know, I'm always kind of trying to uh, keep us all connected. If there's any family members of those people, descendants of those people that want to chime in, we'd love to hear from you. Of course, every girl wore home knit woolen stockings then when the weather was cold. It was in March when we were married and I had on mine. When we got over to Willie's father's house, I discovered that he had on thin cotton socks. I was so afraid that his feet would freeze that I went back to pause and got some wool and carded, spun and knitted him a couple pairs of socks within the week. So sweet. I love that. His folks thought that was wonderful. They were just tubbies and didn't do anything that they could get out of doing. They didn't even piece quilts or pick geese and ducks to make feather beds or milk a cow. They had worlds of cattle and a store, so they always just bought blankets and made comforts for covers. I had been raised to work and make everything that we used. We girls knitted our own stockings and made our own quilts and clothes. We had picked geese and ducks and made feather beds and pillows for ourselves and each of the boys. This is funny, isn't it? Cause she's just like, these people were useless. What were they doing? <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting twist to history that a lot of people don't know about, especially when it, a lot of people think that, um, that they were, uh, the, uh, the um, Willie Spring was like poor and all this other stuff. And it's like, that's not really how it went. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I know. Actually. I, I once heard that one of my Coley relatives had a Tiffany lamp in their house. I could believe it. (laughs) (laughs) So random, you know? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's one thing though, about our Choctaw relatives. Um, Some of like my relatives, I think that were back in Mississippi did really well for themselves. And then they came over during the removal and it was a rough time for quite a while. And then they actually became pretty prominent as the newspapers called them. And then there were some murders that happened and the whole family fell apart and fell into, um, poverty and were sold to white guardians and things like mm-hmm. that. And, and then eventually they kind of came back and they always do. They're just, they're successful. Resilient. Yep. Yeah, they are resilient. That's the word. 
And here she goes a little bit more Harriet talking about a little bit of complaining. There was a house full of uncle Billy children and they didn't work. Manny, my husband's mother was a LaFleur and they had always had slaves to wait on them. She didn't know how to work or to teach her girls to work and they never did learn either. I had quilts that I had made at home and Manny admired them. So she brought goods and I pieced and quilted quilts for her. Uncle Billy had a store there at the place so it was easy for her to get pretty bright colored pieces. I carted the cotton to pad them with. So I thought that was interesting, you know, as, as you and I talked, um, you're a descendant of Chief Greenwood LaFleur. It's interesting because Okay. So in your ancestry, there's chief LaFleur and then there's, there's another Willie, right? Or something. Uh, I know that there's two Williams, um, where they fall in line is one of those things I wish I was better at. Yeah. Uh, I do also know there's a, uh, a Pukshinubi, chief of Pukshinubi. That's right. Okay. Yes, so-, so that's one of those things that's like way, way back. Yeah. Okay. Cause that was before the removal probably. Mm-hmm back in Mississippi, Apukshinobi, and then they came over and then at some point was Chief Greenwood LaFleur. Oh no, Chief LaFleur was part of the decision-making process, right? Yes. And he was the one who decided to help the people, even though, you know, that happened um, to move. And then he left, he was left behind. Well, and it's, it's a tough situation, isn't it? Because they had to make a decision and it was like, okay, we don't give in and our people can get killed. We do give in and our people are upset because they're like, we've just turned ourselves over. We've turned over our land. We're having to go move to this place. We don't know anything about. I mean, they may have hunted some Buffalo in the area, but that's about it. So I mean, it's, I I think that if you read about LaFleur, you know, there were a lot of angry people at what Mm -hmm. he did, but I mean, what would you do? So, yeah. It's, it's a tough one. It's really, it's, it's one of those things where I, for the longest time, would never mention it, especially for pageants, even though people mention their families and all that, I would just play it casual and just be like, mm, and Bohannon, this and that. Right. And Aww. I just would never, yeah. I never would say LaFleur because people had, have still today, very strong opinions. And that's not what I wanted to be associated with. Oh, yeah. I, I can understand why, but at the same time, I mean, had nothing to do with that and mm-hmm. yeah can you imagine native pageant talk about you know your ancestors of the floors and you get tomatoes thrown at you <laughs> mm-hmm. other people would be like what did you say i don't understand so yeah it's it's a sad history but um it was our history and it's part of it so mm-hmm. But obviously the LaFleurs were doing very well for themselves. And it sounded like what Harriet was complaining about was like, I had to teach them to start doing these things because they didn't, they didn't know how to do a lot of stuff. And again, not their fault. That's just the way they were born into their family. So after I moved away from there and was on a place of our own, I got a flock of geese and went to making feather beds and pillows for my fast increasing family. I sold a few feathers along. I got 50 cents a pound all the time. We never saved any kind of geese or duck feathers. The feather money and the wool money always was the pin money for the woman of the family. That was understood. She even had to pay for the shearing of the sheep with her wool money. My mother furnished her home with wool, feather, and egg money. I heard her say once that she was married 40 years before my father bought her a dress. She had plenty of clothes too, nice ones. Ma smoked a pipe. This is fabulous. <laughs> my, my father's mother was blind for 17 years and she would have us to light her pipe by getting coals of fire out of the fireplace. Then we would have to get it going for her. Ma and I both got the smoking habit. She always had those little clay or stone pipes. I still have my mother's little old pipe and smoke it until I broke the stem the other day. Every day at 10 o'clock, Ma smoked. She sat down and smoked for one hour and read. It mattered not what there was to do. Ma smoked and read for one hour each morning, beginning at 10 o'clock. She arranged her work just that way. One funny thing was that Ma had false teeth and never wore them at home. She said they bothered her. So when they would go to church on Sunday, she would smoke on the way over while she could have her teeth out. Then she would have to have some of us girls go down into the bushes with her short after dinner smoke. She went to the bushes when she could take out her teeth. (laughs) She said she could not hold her pipe with them. 
We would take big baskets of good things to church and stay and have dinner on the ground. Whatever was left, we snacked on it for supper and stayed for night services. Some of the boys would be sent home to feed the stock. Then they would come back. Here, I want to mention the reason that Granny always had us to light her pipe with the coal of fire. It was to save matches. We saved everything then. Wrapping paper was carefully cut in strips and pulled into a spiral and flattened and the end tunneled down to fold it. A whole vase full was always to be found in the mantles of nearly every home. And they were used to light lamps and sometimes pipes, but nearly everybody lighted the pipe with coals and fire. So carefully conserving things was perhaps one reason why we needed so little money. We made and saved so much at home. Willie lived 45 years and had 14 children. My husband was a good fiddler and played for dances all over the country for years and years. He was called Uncle Willie. He died in 1927. I love this story and how it gives you just this view into life into the 1800s. And, and so, I mean, when you read this, what do you think? It's one of those things that you just are grateful for the things you have and <laughs> that you are grateful for a lot of things, but even too with family and, and mentioning that um, health and smoking and all that, my grandfather was the last um, to smoke and that was one of his cancers was lung cancer. So Aww. it's really interesting to see the progression with these family stories of how people really um, live their lives and how that generational um, habits really affect people. Very true very true. And, and she didn't have teeth and you have to wonder, you know, I'm sure that came mm -hmm. from all that smoking. <laughs> I can just yeah. going down to the bushes, gotta take a smoke. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, you know, and speaking of your grandpa, so I'd love to pay tribute to your mom's daddy. So your grandpa as well, he sounds like he was just wonderful. So tell us a little bit more about him. So his name was William Colley or Bill is what we would call him Grandpa Bill. He grew up in uh, Rattan, Oklahoma. It was nearby Antlers and not too far from Hugo. Um, he grew up very poor. Um, one of the things that he would always mention to us grandchildren is that uh, he would hunt squirrel and that was what his family would eat for Aww. supper. And he even had um, for one school photo, um, someone gave him a jacket to wear so he would look nice because he had holes in his shirt and he even um, had shoes that um, he would get once a year. And that is essentially how he um, lived. And if he didn't have shoes that could fit him, he walked barefoot in the snow and everything. For real. I mean, it's like they try to tell us things like that, but sometimes it's actually true. Yeah. And um, so uh, when he actually eventually left school in eighth grade to work in the oil fields in California after they moved, it was really... Um, important for him that we continue our education and that's really what inspired me to get my bachelor's wow um any chance you were a first generation uh graduate from college i mean my dad kind of ruined it he he oh, he, he um, it? <laughs> no he never graduated he um he did a lot of uh tech things back in the day and so the degree just wasn't a value and he really pioneered that field but his dad has a doctorate he's a compound pharmacist so he's someone who okay. knows how to make medicine so in that technically no right okay well still yes. it's pretty cool though <laughs> yeah on my mom's side pretty much yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's exciting congratulations that's a big Thank thing you. to celebrate so and then you guys have um and you mentioned Collie was your last name there's a town named after your family right yes and I want to say it's called Colleyville in Texas and we can't live there because it's too expensive but um <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's one of those things where you know the, the town was founded by one of the family members and that was history and we we just you know moved to california so that's they just kicked out went. your own town <laughs> <laughs> in fact it is the i'm just looking it up here it's the 10th wealthiest city in the united states oh no dang <laughs> <laughs> It's in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. It's only 3.5 miles from the airport. 
Oh, like see, I, live. I, I, I had no idea like exactly where it was on the map. I just know that's the thing, but I'm terrible with maps and graphs. So, you know, one no, of those. No, it's, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, the crime rate's low. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this place, but I don't think I could afford it. So um, we can at least go visit it next time we're in Dallas. But yeah. <laughs> So, so this grandpa that you're talking about, he was the one that really supported you when you were doing your pageants, right? Yes. He helped with cultural things and he really was very stern. He's like, if you're going to be a princess, you know, that means you have a lot of responsibility because you have a lot to restore and live up to because he, and he was the one who told me to never mention LaFleur and all that because he knew the history well enough to be like, this will be to your detriment. Wow. So, so yeah. are you, is this podcast you're coming out about Greenwood? Is that, is that weird to think about? Yeah. In yeah. a way, in a way, kind of, oh, I've so mentioned proud of you. <laughs> so it's just one of those things where this is my family. This is part of who I am. That doesn't mean that's how I act. Right. Right. Well, and I'm glad you say that because I have my great, great grandpa killed a bunch of people because of the Dawes act. He was very angry. Um, I don't know if Choctaw scalped people, but he scalped some people during that time. It's in the newspapers. It's gruesome. Some of the things that he did. And I have his picture on my ancestry wall. So I have this wall of my ancestors and hanging up and my daughter hates it. She's scared of him. She's like, don't put him up there. And I'm like, he needs love too. You know? And I feel like we're in a time now where we can come out about those things. You know, it's like, Hey, I had a hoodlum for a great, great grandpa. How about you? You know? Oh yeah. Chief Greenwood LaFleur was, was my answer. Well, you know, if we do end up finding out if we're related, the Collies, you know, back in, when yeah. they were in England were, and Ireland and all that, they were not the friendliest and nicest people. Oh, so it's just one of those okay. things where, you know, if, if he was a Collie, you know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of in the genes. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. What's you never horrible. know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, and I feel like I'm a nice person now. So I feel like I've broken the, whatever the collie thing was, you know, if thing. there were mean collie people or collie I don't know people. how to start a fight or anything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> we're breaking the chain, man breaking the chain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for, you know, entrusting us with your family history. And I think it's very important and it's, and it's special and it's unique to you and well, and anyone else that's related to them, I guess, but it's, it's your story and I'm proud of you for talking about it. So, but, but your grandpa was really big into saying, okay, this is how you be a princess. This is how you carry yourself. This is what you talk about. This is what you don't talk about. And in return, you made something special for him, right? Yes. I made him his first, first pair of pucker toe moccasins. Oh, what did he think? Did he love them? He was so giddy and so happy. And this is a very much a man, a tubby. Yeah, right, <laughs> he, right. He, he he had his words and he chose them wisely but that yeah. was one of the few times i saw him smile a lot oh, I yes that. If, if you only could have captured that moment you know with a picture or whatever um yes so it's interesting because with him until eighth grade i think you said he was in Oklahoma and then they moved to, for work to California. So do you feel like he left some of that culture behind or do you feel like, I mean, eighth grade is still old enough to be able to hang on to some of those memories and things. So what do you think happened with that family when they moved over to California? So what my uncle Don tells me is that a lot of them adopted uh white culture just because they wanted to fit in and they wanted to uh, essentially assimilate and not be noticed Uh, but grandpa bill he wasn't like that Mm. and he always was so excited to get the bishkinic and get everything like that he he was a real lover of the culture and even though he may not have been a full-on participant he, it was something that he wanted his children to have. And I think through him, um, a lot of my family members have said, now we feel proud to be chalked up because of you, Sarah. Wow. wow. Yeah. And so it's, it's just one of those things where people are coming out and they're like, we're chalked out. I'm like, 
yeah we are i'm glad you joined it oh my <laughs> god <the> movement. <laughs> <Right>. welcome <laughs> isn't it great that like these generations now they're proud they're being born proud and and it's okay now and not only that we're getting movies and shows and mm-hmm. awards and and designer gowns and all these things is so cool. It just, I don't know if our listeners are getting goosebumps, but I'm really in the goosebumps moment right now. (laughs) Um, and you know, he, he just sounds like such a good man. And just like he helped you when you were in pageants, you took care of him later in life. Didn't you? Yes, I did. In 2018, I went to Kansas. I quit my job. I went out there with the feather mantle. Um, he never got to see it made or be done because by that point, um, when I had joined my mother in his hospice care, that's when um, all four of his stage four cancers really took a toll on him. And then he eventually passed, but he got to be buried with his first and last pair of moccasins. Oh my goodness. So I think it's interesting that, you know, you guys helped each other along this journey in life and you made his very first and his very last pair of moccasins. Wow. What a guy, right? Mm -hmm. Gosh, I bet you miss him. I do all the time. I really do. When you're doing Mm -hmm. some of the work you do, do you think of him and you're just like, oh, I know he's proud. I do. I really do. It's one of those things where I would always think of him even when he was living like and yeah think of him whenever I did anything involving culture it was really something that was very um empowering Mm -hmm. to have him be that person that was like nope I'm not gonna assimilate I'm gonna be Choctaw yeah in a time when it wasn't cool to do that Mm mm-hmm Thank you so much for sharing about your good work, recording these beautiful hymns and for sharing about your life and your family stories, but we don't want to go without first listening to an absolutely beautiful rendition of the Lord's prayer in Choctaw. Take a listen. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing this gift with us. 
And I'm sure that our listeners were, were touched by this song and, and the others that we played. There's more out there. Um, we're going to give you some information on how to see or how to listen more to Sarah's songs. Quick question. Are there any Native causes you'd like to promote today? So I would like to promote the Oklahoma Clan of California. They really helped me to form a bridge with Choctaws in Oklahoma, as well as outside of um, the 10 and a half counties to California and so forth. So any kind of donation of your time or anything like that is, is something that they really appreciate and they really value tremendously. And anything involving my singing and all that, that's where YouTube comes into play. And that's where I'll be uploading songs and things like that. That's great. So I'll also be sure to post some of these links onto my native native Chalk Talk Facebook page. A uh, quick cheat sheet here um, for the Okla Chudda clan of California. That's O-K-L-A-C-H-A-H-T-A.org. And then of course you can go to YouTube and put in Sarah De Herrera. And so listeners, be sure to check out again, my Facebook and Instagram pages. And finally, are there any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners? It's okay to be different. It's really not necessary to be just like everybody else. And it's okay to be that person that really steps out of line and steps in the direction to lead others in the the ways of our people. And that's something that I really hope people can value. Beautiful. And maybe something else that, again, it was totally impromptu. Um, that I want to add on to this. I don't normally do this, but, um, it's to, it's to, we may not always be proud of what our ancestors have done, but you know, at this point we can own it and say, here's who I am. And here's my, here's my history. Here's my family history and be proud of that. So thank you again for, you know, just totally opening up about all of that today. I've loved visiting with you today, Sarah, and I know our listeners were blessed by your music. Truly, the voice of the Chata Taloa. Yakuki. Yakuki. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chata Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chata Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechoctalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends. <laughs>